This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. in this life, right? Uh, common sense don't come easy. Life, life's got its challenges for some of us. But you know, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking this week about us, about our lives. Uh, you know, here we are, right? All of us living, most of us living on this amazing island that we call Oahu. And there's just so much about this place that's paradise. You know, so many people on the planet on the globe, they want to come here. Of all places in the world, they want to come here. Right? This is the place to be. And rightly so, we do live in a paradise. Nevertheless, right? I've met a good number of people, particularly high school students who grew up here, and they're at this stage in life where they can't wait to leave quick enough. Right? They're at this stage where they have an itch to go a desire to see different things out in the world, off in the world, on the mainland or wherever else. The magic of the islands has kind of waned for them. And then there are others, right, who are at that same age, that same stage of life, who don't really want to venture far. Family is here. Friends are here. Church is here. The familiar is here. And many who are raised here uh, find that after they leave, after they get a taste of the mainland or wherever else, it's just, it's not Oahu. It's just not the same. And you know what? They come back. They return. They return with a renewed appreciation for this island, for this place. And for me, of course, I didn't grow up here. Uh, for me, the allure of Hawaii is unparalleled. I've been to a fair number of places in the world, but this place, this place is at the top of the list, right? The hiking, the snorkeling, the diving, the surfing, although I can't surf yet, the exploring, the, the just playing, the views, right? It's, it's all such a gift. But you know, the, the, the first two of our two and a half years here, honestly, They've probably been the most difficult of my whole life. We're just saying something. Um, going through the travails of an international adoption that was nothing like we could have anticipated. It was nothing like we could have anticipated. It was a gut-wrenching experience. And pretty much nobody around us understood. Nobody got it. Nobody could understand. We, we needed people to journey with us. But everyone kind of wanted to give advice. And everyone kind of wanted to point fingers. The frustrations at my previous job at the time, they were, just put quite simply, exhausting. Exhausting. We, we weren't able to get uh, out of church and stay plugged in out of church um, like we were before we moved here. We, we didn't have a support network here like we did before we moved here. And it was tough. It was really, really tough. And so 
I and Christy along with me, I found myself grieving the past. I was grieving the past. I was, I was grieving loss. I was grieving what was and what, what had been. I was grieving the home we had left. The yard that we had left. We ain't got no yard now. The neighborhood we left. I was grieving the neighborhood we left. The church we left. The friends we left. The, the school our kids left. Grieving so much, all of that. In Hawaii, at a number of points, was starting for me to feel like a mistake. Was starting to feel like a letdown. And whether you grew up here, or whether you moved here, I'm sure you can, at the very least, relate to that. Right? We've all had to grieve things that we've lost. People, places, things, experiences, and more. We've all been stared in the face, directly in the face, by letdown. Every one of us have had letdown look us right in the eyes. And life, it's full of these letdowns. Our jobs can let us down. Our friends can let us down. Our family members can let us down. Our society can let us down. Our government can let us down. Our politicians can let us down. Our church can let us down. All of the spheres in which we live and move and have our being, they pose risks for us. Being part of a workplace, being part of a friendship, being part of a family, being part of a society or a church involves me and you becoming a bit vulnerable. We have to be a little bit vulnerable, maybe a lot vulnerable, right? Risking vulnerability. Risking the possibility of that other person letting us down, of that other person hurting us, of that other person doing us wrong. Every year at the end of December, we're confronted with this blessed ritual of reflecting on the previous year, everything that happened in the 52 preceding weeks, reflecting on the year's victories and the year's letdowns. But in this ritual of reflecting on the previous year, we, we somehow find that the amount of hope on the horizon outweighs the letdowns in our rear view. It's kind of interesting. And so for most of us, New Year's Eve is this sort of ritual of, of hope. We find ourselves hoping for a better tomorrow. Hoping for a better year of, ahead. Hoping that three days in we won't be bombing other nations. Hoping for more. Hoping against hope sometimes for more. Hoping for more stable finances. Hoping for stronger marriages. Hoping for healthier relationships. Hoping for more meaningful spiritual lives. And so as we begin a new year together, I'm stoked to, to begin a new series on the last text of Scripture, Revelation. Whether you're aware of it or not, Revelation is full of hope. It's full of hope. Maybe of all Scripture, it offers the most hope. That may sound odd to you. It may seem a bit unexpected. But as we journey through the text for the, the better part of 2020, I want you to know that Revelation speaks to all those things that we hope for. It offers hope in each area of our lives. And, and here's, what I, here's what I want you to, here's what I want to share with you this morning. 
Revelation offers a hope-filled promise that God sees you and God's got your back. God sees you and God's got your back. And as we embark on reading and studying and thinking about and embodying Revelation together, we're going to take our natural starting point at the beginning, the first eight verses. Now, I want to give a disclaimer here. I'm not going to be using a standard translation week in and week out. So I know you all use different English translations. Um, each week, I'm going, to just, I'm going to offer my own translation, which closely follows the Greek of the New Testament. And so I want to encourage you to, to compare the translation that I'm giving you with whatever translation that you may be using or to take notes on the translation. Um, but each week, I'll leave it up here and uh, I'll try to have it on the app. By the way, you might not know, the, the church has this uh, Bible app, and you can go there and get the bulletin and the sermon notes and things on there every week, right? So if you need more in, info about that, see Tuan. But um, for those of you in peer groups, you're going to get to encounter the, uh, some more nuances of the text that maybe we don't touch on in the uh, sermon. But you'll, you'll see the translation there as well. So here's Revelation 1, 1 to 8. Here's what it says. A revelation of Jesus, the anointed one, which God gave to him to show to his servants what must occur with quickness. And he symbolized it after he sent it through his angel to his servant, John, who testified about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, the anointed one whom he saw. Blessed is the one reading and the ones hearing the words of the prophecy, while also obeying the things which have been written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, says, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who was, and the one coming, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus, the anointed one, the testifier, the faithful one, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the lands to the one who loves us and freed us from our sins with his blood and made us a kingdom, priests unto God, also his father. To him be the glory and power into the age of ages. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the land will mourn him. Yes, amen. I myself am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is and the one who was and the one coming, the Almighty. Amen. Now, as with most passages of Scripture, there's a lot to this one. A lot to unpack. Oh, sorry, I didn't scroll. Sorry. There's a lot to unpack. But there are four main things that I want to draw our attention to here. If I do that again, somebody can just shout at me, hey, scroll, right? Um, but there are four main things in this that I want to draw our attention to right here. Um, and I want to say a bit about these, but the four items you can see here are the Trinity, key people mentioned in these verses, key things mentioned in these verses, and then the idea of covenant. And so we're going to start with the first of these, the triune God. Maybe you didn't, you didn't see it there, but if we look closely, uh, we find that in these first eight verses, John has an explicitly Trinitarian focus of God the Father. Notice what he says. You can see that here. In this very short span of verses, he says that God the Father gave a revelation to Jesus, symbolized the revelation, sent the revelation through the Spirit, 
that God the Father is the one who is, was, and is coming. He is Jesus' Father. He is worthy of glory and power into the age of ages, is the Alpha and the Omega, is almighty, and is a co-sender of grace and peace. Right? And until we stop and sort of really pay attention to this, it can sort of just stay hidden right there in front of us. That's a lot to say about God the Father. But notice too what he says about God the Son. Again, uh, a lot here. Right? Notice the richness and diversity of these terms. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the word of God, the testifier, the faithful one, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings of the land. He loves us. He freed us from our sins with his blood. He made us a kingdom, made us priests unto God. He's God's son. He's coming on the clouds. He's the one that every eye will see and all the tribes will mourn. And he's a co-sender of this with grace and peace. That's a lot. A whole lot. John's not done. Notice what he says about God the Spirit. A little less, but still, that the Spirit is God's angel. And the Spirit is described as the seven throne, or the seven spirits before God's throne. That is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And a co-sender of grace and peace. Now, what John says in these first eight verses of Revelation is magnificent and, and it's probably more than most of us could articulately say about God in an essay of a book or a chapter of a book. Now, while I'm on this, I, I do want to touch on this number, use of the number seven, right? Because this is really interesting and most of you probably know that in the scripture, seven represents completeness or perfection or fullness or wholeness. So whenever you encounter that number seven in scripture, that's kind of what it's going for. And so when John's talking about the seven spirits before God's throne, he's not talking literally about seven different spirits, right? This is a way to talk about the fullness of the Holy Spirit in sort of a, a symbolic way, right? A sort of code language, right? And so he'll use this number throughout Revelation quite a bit. And this is but using numbers like this, this is but one of the ways that he symbolizes things. And he tells us right out of the gate, this, this is a symbolized message. He's going to use numbers and colors and weather phenomena and furniture and all kinds of things as symbols, as signs. John kind of speaks this sign language, right? Not, not with his hands so much, but with these vivid images that are signs or symbols. And so this touches on the first point. I want to go to the second one, these key people, right? You notice that they're listed here. The, that the, you mentioned seven churches, and then you mentioned servants, a reader, and listeners. And so we can start with these seven churches, and there's that number seven again, which is signaling to us all of the churches, like the church in its completeness, the church in its entirety, the whole church, right? He, he does go on to address seven specific congregations in this area of the ancient world that was called Asia Minor, right? Ephesus and Pergamum and these other places. He does address seven specific churches, but these letters and the things that he says to them are meant for the church in its entirety, not only those churches, right? So, and then we have these servants, and they're the people, the congregants, that make up all the churches. Think about that. The, the, the Father, follow this logic, the, God the Father is the source of this message. 
He's, he's the source of the revelation. He, God the Father reveals it to God the Son, Jesus. Right? Get that. God the Father reveals this message to God the Son, Jesus, and it's revealed by God the Spirit to John. In other words, from God's perspective, if you're, you're part of God's church, it's revealed to the servant John, then you are viewed by God as a servant of God. Like, that's how God views me and you, as a servant of God. And so this morning, right, maybe, maybe there are some of us that need to be reminded of that. Some of us that need to hear that. How are we serving God's church? How are we serving the bride? Are we really being servants? Are we really living in to the way that God desires to see us as servants of God? How are you doing that? What's that look like in your life? How are you serving the church? And so, you, you got to catch this. It's really, really significant, too, that John mentions a reader, singular, and listeners, plural. Right? Um, and the ancient church did something similar to what we're doing here this morning. There's a reader or a preacher, singular, and a lot of listeners, plural. And these servants, John is a servant who is delivering the revelation to the servants. And so, to reiterate again, God views us as servants. Servants serving one another. How have you done that recently? How have you lived into your call as a servant? Into God's view of you as a servant? How have you served His church? We're going to get to our third point here. Two key things that we've seen in this text. There's a revelation and then there's a prophecy. And you can see that I've defined those here. What is a revelation? John actually, in the Greek, uses the word apocalypse. That's the Greek word for the English word that we call revelation. It went from Greek into Latin and then made its way down to English. That's how it went from apocalypse to revelation. right? A revelation, as you can see, as I've defined here, is a visual, symbolic, or symbolized prophecy. Well, that raises the, the question, what's a prophecy? A prophecy is a vocal, not a visual, but a vocal or an audible call to a covenant obedience that results in blessing. Right? Prophecy is not trying to predict what's way out, you know, way out there. Not trying to predict what's way out in the future. Prophecy is concerned with here and now, foretelling. It's calling you to obedience. That's what a prophecy is. Now, some people have taken this word and run amok with it. Right? They, they've, they've made it about something that it's not. So when we talk about prophecy, we're not talking about what lays off hundreds or thousands of years or at the, at the so-called end of the world. We're talking about a call to obedience, a call to covenant obedience right here and right now. That's what prophecy is dealing with. It's forthtelling. In the main, that's how Scripture views prophecy. It's a call to covenant obedience right now, which results in blessing. Sure, there are some things that are forecasting and looking a bit ahead. But John's uh, prophecy here, that's not what it's doing. That's not what it's concerned with. It's concerned with a call to covenant obedience right now and right here. And so we have this fusing together then, right, of what is seen, the visual, and what is heard the prophetic, right? He's, he's blending what's seen and what's heard. 
a revelation and a prophecy. And what's seen and what's heard in Revelation, it's pulled from a number of different places in John's life. From his experience there on Patmos, which we'll talk about next week, which was an island. Um, his experiences under the Roman Empire. His experiences in society in dealing with uh, the Jewish religious officials and their system. His experiences of hearing some of the, the New Testament letters and texts that he had heard and drawing heavily from the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, he says that of the 404 verses, that's how many verses there are in Revelation, 404. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, 515 refer back to the Old Testament. There are 515 references back to the Old Testament. So get that. There are only 404 verses but there are actually 515 references back to the Old Testament. That's kind of crazy to think about. Right? So, and so Eugene Peterson says that while there are 66 books in, in Scripture, if we haven't read the previous 65 and we venture into this one, we're probably going to be kind of lost. Right? And he says... Uh, if, if we haven't read the previous 65, he actually says we have very little business venturing into the last one. Right Now, the, the point's well taken there. I don't think I agree with him necessarily on that, but it is a little bit compelling to think about that. If you're not familiar with what's come before, then how are you going to understand this one when it draws so heavily on what's come before? It's a good point. It's a fair point. This brings us to our fourth item, covenant. And so it shouldn't be an unfamiliar word to most of y'all. At the same time, I wonder if you would have a tough time defining it if somebody just came up to you on the street and said, how do you define covenant? Right? So I'm going to help a little bit this morning. This is our word of the week, by the way, covenant. I know you all have probably heard that. Here's how I'm defining covenant. A partnership between God and His creation or God and His people that is especially His people. And so if, if uh, in a partnership, God tells people, look, if you keep your end of the deal, if you keep your end of the covenant, you're going to receive the blessing of my presence. But if you don't, if you don't keep your end of the covenant, you're probably going to experience my discipline or my wrath or maybe even the absence of my presence. Now, in the Old Testament, God makes a handful of covenants. Right? Some would find more than this. Some scholars would find more than this. Some might find less than this, but I, I can see at least five covenants that God makes, right? With Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses on behalf of all of Israel, and then King David, right? So knowing just a little bit. Now I need you to really follow with me here, because this, this is gonna, this is gonna be a big point in a moment. If you know a little bit about each of these covenants, it makes all the difference in the world, right? So if you know about um, God's partnership with Adam, right? He told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and spread my image across the earth. He told him, Adam, don't eat of this tree. And he told him to be obedient, right? And when Adam disobeyed instead, what we see is a withdrawal of God's presence from Adam in a deeply moving, in a deeply profound way. And what happened there in that garden, at that tree, it's affected humanity ever since, right? 
God's presence has not been felt the same ever since then. And so we're, we're kind of like on this cycle of trying to get back to that, to experience God's presence that way. God made a covenant with Noah. You all know this story. Interestingly, this one was actually like a one-sided covenant. Of all the covenants, this is the oddest one because it's very one-sided. God told Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. But then he goes, it isn't relying upon you, right? It's relying upon me. That's what God tells Noah. It's kind of interesting. Go back and read that. So fine, done. We get to Abraham after the flood with Noah. And, and God tells Abraham, hey, if you're obedient, if you keep your end of the covenants, I'll bless all the nations of the earth through your seed. It's an incredible partnership that God's offering Abraham. And God makes a covenant or a partnership with Moses. And here, Moses, he sort of stands in for all of the Israelites. And of course, as we know, they disobey. And they disobey. And they disobey. And they keep breaking their end of the covenant. And then there's the covenant with King David, who also disobeys. And what we have then, with the exception of Noah, is this pattern of covenant making between God and humans. And each time, humans fail. So, What's left for God to do except make a covenant with Himself? He can keep the covenant, right? And so God, He becomes a human. And that's what, exactly what happens. The new covenant, the New Testament, the new partnership is ratified between God the Father and God the Spirit with God the Son. And it's as if Jesus picks up all the broken pieces of those previous broken partnerships and puts them back together in himself. And if that isn't amazing enough, Jesus has a goal. And it's a goal that he's bent on. A goal he's intent on. And Jesus says to the Father, Father, look, I know that they failed at the covenants in the past. They can't do it. So I'm doing it on their behalf. They're called now in this new covenant, is to give their lives to me and follow me and to be obedient to me. And for Jesus, if we love him, we'll do just that. And if we fail again, he's got us. If we fail again, he's got us. If we fail again, he's got us. It's good stuff, right? And it's all connected. It's all threaded together. So uh, follow me here. From Genesis to Revelation, right? They're bookends to Scripture the first and the last of Scripture. And this partnership, it's between God and humans, it's a major part of what connects these two bookends of Scripture. But there are other parts too, right? Genesis, it begins in a garden. In Revelation, when you get to the very end of it, you find that it's ending in a garden. It's this renewed version of Eden. And at the end of Revelation. And you know what? There's this tree in the beginning of Genesis. And there's this tree in the end of Revelation. We'll get there eventually. And if we want to sum it up then, here's what Scripture is. It's life between two gardens. Life between two trees. So a, a beginning and an end with a lot of life in between. And as followers of Jesus, we seed, we plant, we till, we water, and we cultivate this life and this world that God has given us. We also cut, we also pull weeds, we also clean and remove things 
that need removing. Life is what happens between the two trees. Life is all this that happens between the two trees. And God says that in this life, if we hear revelation, a sort of summation of everything that comes before, a prophetic word for the now, for the moment, not necessarily for the future way off, if we hear it and we obey it, we've kept our side of the covenant, our side of the partnership. But you know, many, many hear it and they reject it. Many hear it and they ignore it. Many hear it and they shrug it off or don't take it too seriously. Many hear it and remain skeptical. Many hear it and they outrightly disobey. And when that happens, right, we, what we see is a sort of disobedience that runs rampant in our churches, in our families, in our societies. A disobedience that mars lives, that ruins lives, which lends itself to things like greed, which then lends itself to poverty and sickness and hardship. A disobedience that declares we don't need a covenant. We don't need a partnership with God. We can take care of ourselves just fine. A disobedience that takes whatever sin or whatever sins happen to be prominent in our society at the moment and tries to baptize them and call them good and holy. A disobedience that turns its gaze away from Christ and focuses on everyone and everything else. But those who strive to be obedient, we hold out hope. We know, we know that it can be different. We want it to be different. We long for it to be different. And even though we want all the pain and all the suffering in this world to end, instead of saying, Lord, come, you know what? We should find ourselves praying, Lord, hold off just a little bit longer. Wait just a little bit longer, God. There are loved ones who don't know you yet. There are friends who don't know you yet. There are messes in our lives that we got to clean up. Wait just a little bit longer, God. Just a little bit longer. It reminds me of a, a song I was listening to this past week. It's, it's titled, It Won't Be Like This For Long. And you might know this song. It's by Darius Rucker. And in the song, uh, Darius Rucker, he tells the story of him and his wife having this little girl. And as he tells the story, uh, it's from his daughter's birth, right, through her adolescence and through her teenage years and eventually walking her down the aisle. You, you hear him singing about his pain and his heartache, his weariness, but also his joy. And he sees this little baby girl of his, and, and he doesn't want her to change or grow up. At the same time, if that doesn't happen, He's going to miss out on all the wonderful experiences and different stages of her life. So he begins the song with these lyrics. Listen to them. He didn't have to wake up. He'd been up all night, laying there in bed listening to his newborn baby cry. He makes a pot of coffee. He splashes water on his face. His wife gives him a kiss and says, it's going to be okay. And then the chorus hits. And it has this line that he repeats throughout the song. It won't be like this for long. And it's got this sort of double meaning, which is really clever. On the one hand, this isn't going to like take that long. You'll get through it. It's not going to be like this for long. But on the other hand, like soak in this moment of life. Because once it passes, you can't get it back. 
It's not going to last that long. You're going to want it back, but you're not going to be able to get it back. And so there's this sort of double meaning that he's doing. You're going to get through this, but also relish the moment. And so the chorus says, it won't be like this for long. One day soon we'll look back laughing at the week we brought her home. This phase is going to fly by, so baby, just hold on. It won't be like this for long. And I don't, I don't need to rehearse the entire song here, but I want to make this point. As we read Revelation, there's a sense in which that becomes our mentality. It won't be like this for long. It won't be like this for long, right? On the one hand, we can get through all this crap that's happening in the world, in our lives, whatever's going on at the moment. On the other hand, we got to try to relish life because it won't be like this for long. And, And so life between these two trees, right? It's full of letdowns. It's full of heartache. It's full of pain. It's full of hurt but it's also full of yearning and full of joy. But it won't be like this for long. And it doesn't have to be like this for now. Covenant obedience brings hope. It brings healing. And it brings change to people who are hurting. And it brings change to a world that's hurting. So this morning and every morning going forward, I want you to be aware of something. My goal when I'm preaching, my goal in delivering a message isn't to give you something that's relevant to your life or something that's immediately to be pulled from the Scriptures and applied to your life. That's not my goal as a preacher. I've written two books on this, right, that argue against that, right, in the task of preaching, right? Sermons aren't about application. They're not. Sermons are about cultivating devotion. Right, And so on some Sundays, you may hear me say, do this, or don't do this. Or you may hear me offer a word or a thought that gives you something to think about. Or maybe the Spirit will be working in you and convict you in a way, a very important way. Or or maybe you'll be encouraged. I don't know what goes on with each of you when you hear a sermon on any given Sunday morning. But I'm not here to tell you how to live your life and how to apply the Bible to your life. I'm here to open the Scriptures together with you, shed some light on them, and leave the rest up to you and God. So, while there may be an application point each week, there will always be some, not be an application point each week, there may, there's always going to be something to help nudge you towards a deeper devotion and commitment to God, nudge you toward keeping that covenant in a better and more fruitful and full way. To be more faithful to God, to be more faithful to His church and to His scripture and His work. And so this morning, here's the sort of bottom line I want to give to you. My hope this morning is that you leave with a renewed sense of who God is. I'm always up here working to help us get a healthier image of God in our lives. Week in and week out, that's really what I'm trying to do. Trying to get you to have a healthier image of what God is like, what He looks like, who He is. The single most important thing about me and the single most important thing about each of you is your image of God. 
what you think of it. That's the single most important thing about you. It just is. And, and I want to help you have a healthy image of God because it makes all the difference in the world. What you believe about God, how you see God says everything about you when you get down to it. So I want to spend my time week in and week out helping you do just that. This morning, I'm reminded that we serve a God who has our back. Between these trees, this life, God has our back. In the heartache, He's got our back. In the blessing, He's got our back. In this new year, He's got our back. And I hope that we can enter this new year 2020 with that image of God in our mind, starting fresh with that. That this is the year of God has got our back. Right? So a question I have for you this morning is, how does 2020 then look for you knowing that? How does 2020 look for you knowing that God's got your back? How does it affect the perspective that you have in your workplace, for example, that God's got your back? How does it affect the perspective that you have in your family relationships and in your friendships? At school, knowing that God's got your back. Christy and I are going on 17 years of marriage this year. Eight, 18 years of knowing one another. Um, and it, it's kind of actually crazy for me to say. It's hard to believe. But 17 years ago when we got married, we, we wrote our vows to one another. and. Uh, each of us, in them, we each made a promise to each other. And that was the promise. I promise to always have your back. Right? I promise to always have your back. We've striven to keep this covenant that we made, this promise that we made to one another. It's not always been easy. I've wanted to give up sometimes. She's put in more work sometimes than I have. I've put in more work than she has sometimes. Sometimes it's gone so smooth that neither of us feel like we're putting in any work. But that's the covenant we made. I promise to always have your back. That's covenant. We have a God that's like that, who's got our back. Living on an island is very different it's paradise, but it isn't always easy. And living on an island, people need each other. So as we head into this year of covenant keeping, of covenant obedience, partnership keeping, may this be the year that we hold on to Revelation's promise that God's not only with us, Emmanuel, but that God's got our back. Amen? Amen. If you're able, stand with me this morning. And with your palms upright in a posture of receiving, receive this blessing, this benediction. And now, may you place your trust in the God who is our all in all. The God who is our strength when we are weak. And the God who's got our backs.
Go in peace. Amen.